Please do take a seat. And uh, as you do, it'd be great if you could open up Mark's Gospel again at uh, chapter 8 and have a look down at verse 31. That's where we're starting tonight, Mark chapter 8. But first of all, before we get there, let me, let me ask you a question. How long do you want to live? How long do you want to live? It's a bit of a morbid question, isn't it? We don't, we don't really ask that. You can imagine, you can imagine how that would go down in a social setting at a party. You know, what's your name? Daph, what's your name? John. Well, John, how long do you want to live? Uh, but the news headlines on Tuesday were, were just about that. Did you see this on the BBC website? Apparently, the rate of life expectancy increase has slowed. There was a professor saying, this is a disaster, we, we can't work out why. Perhaps it's due to the austerity measures. Some people were suggesting maybe that the human body actually can only give us about 115 years. That, that's our sell-by date. 115 years, that's the tops you can hope for from your body. Now, what if, if I told you the, the answer to that question, how long do you hope to live, is this. You are going to live forever. Whoever you are, whether you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ or not, the Bible says you are going to live forever. You will never cease to have a conscious existence. That's because the Bible talks about something called your soul. That's the real you. That's the you beyond your chemical makeup. It's the you that feels and loves and knows. And the Bible says that once we come into the world, our soul goes on forever. That's why Brian Sage, in, before he lost consciousness last Saturday night, his, his primary question again and again was this, how long? Not, not how long have I got still just to cling to this life? No, no he asked this question, how long till I go home. That's the thing. If your soul lives forever, that's why, as we've talked about Bran this morning, we've talked about him being in the presence of Jesus. Bran is more alive now than he has ever been spiritually with his Lord. You're going to live forever. Now, expect if I then tried to sell this formula in Mark 8 as a formula for a lifelong happiness and hope, I wouldn't get very far because the formula of Mark 8 is this. To live forever with Jesus, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. But, but according to Jesus in these verses, that's the only way to save your soul. That word soul comes again and again in the reading in verse 35. It's translated life, but actually it's the same word. Whoever wants to save their soul will lose it, but whoever loses their soul for me and the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? See, peace for your soul now and peace for your soul forever, peace for you, is found in a relationship with the God who loves you enough to come to earth in the person of his son and lay down his life for you. And that's the message of Mark 8. 
Now, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, you'll know that Mark's gospel isn't really much of a mystery story, because in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, Mark says, this is the beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. In other words, I want you to know this is who Jesus is, God's rescuing king. But as we've gone over the first half of Mark, Jesus has presented more and more evidence that this is exactly who he is. He's taught in a way that silenced the top minds of the day. He's healed people in a way that we're told the crowds were amazed because they'd never seen anything like this. He's even raised a dead girl back to life. And yet his disciples, they just seem stumbling along in the dark. They can't quite get their minds around who he is. And then last Sunday night, we saw in in Mark chapter 8, Jesus opened the eyes of a blind man, and it was a picture of the way he's been opening the eyes of the disciples to just who he is. And then, what did they say? Well, Mark 8 verse 29, just before our reading, Jesus asked them, but what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And finally, Peter answered, you are the Messiah. You're the king that God has sent. You're the one come to rescue his people. You're the one come to restore his kingdom. And you'd think, well, surely you want now them to spread that news, Jesus. Now now they've got it. You want them to tell people about you. But, But instantly, Jesus says in verse 30, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. And that's because they haven't quite grasped yet what sort of king Jesus is going to be. And that's what Jesus teaches them in our passage. He teaches them that the king must die. The king must die. Look at verse 31 with me. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. This is the heart of Jesus' mission. If you're not a Christian here, you need to understand that the death of the person who founds our religion is the high point for us. The the word must that appears twice in that verse has the idea of divine necessity. This is God's plan. This is the only way according to the creator of the universe. He must suffer. He must die. He must rise again. Now, for those of us who follow Jesus for a while, I, I think we begin to lose the enormity of that don't we sometimes begin to let the words oh yeah Jesus died on the cross trip off our tongues a little too easily and that's because we lose how high Jesus is and how low he went do you see that that phrase the son of man in there That's how Jesus describes himself. And it's not just a a reference to him being a human being. No, in the Old Testament, the Son of Man has a history. This is who the Son of Man is in the book of Daniel. He is the one being given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that can never be destroyed. Can you imagine that kind of authority? Effectively, it's saying he's the one who rules everyone and everything forever. The most glorious human being ever to set foot on the face of the earth. The one who's demonstrated time and time again, he deserves our worship. He is the Lord. The eternal God beyond space and time who has come close, so close in the Son that 
that we can touch him in space and time. You can't get higher than Jesus. This week, did you see in the news, some poor bloke in Canada, was he the governor or something, got in trouble? Do you see why he got in trouble? He accidentally touched the arm of the queen going down a set of stairs. The queen is so important, you're not allowed to touch her. But he touched her arm because he was a bit worried. I mean, she is about 325 years old. That, <laughs> 91. That she'd fall as she went down the stairs. That's what you do, isn't it? But she's so special, the queen. You know, you don't... Hi, Liz. You just don't touch her. Well, the Son of Man is the only person that our queen's ever kneeled to. In the coronation, she kneels and prays and admits that this Jesus is her king. You can't touch the queen. But do you see what the Son of Man did for us? He suffered. He died. In fact... There's another part in the Old Testament I think Mark's alluding to, to, to Isaiah chapter 53, where it describes one who will suffer for God's people. And it says this, the one who was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. My mission, says Jesus, the mission of God's king, the one who created all things by the power of his word, is to lay down his life in bitter agony on the cross, to to be ill-treated, to be rejected, to be spat upon, to take upon himself the punishment that we deserve for the way we've treated God and each other so we can have peace with God and peace with other people in eternity. No, No wonder Peter in verse 32 goes, mate, you've got that wrong. No, really. No, I know the Messiah. I've read my Old Testament. He's a glorious king. Uh, that's why I just need to take you to one side, Jesus, and tell you, you've got that wrong. <laughs> Kings don't suffer. They ride into Jerusalem at the head of an army. We're going to take the Romans out. It's going to be glorious. I've read the scriptures, Jesus. <laughs> suffer? No, no, no. You're going to sit on a throne, not die on a cross. But, but actually, Jesus says something Very, very harsh, it seems to Peter. Did you see that in verse 33? But Jesus, but when Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Jesus knows that every one of his followers needs to understand this. If you have a human view of life, it's all about glory now. Isn't it? That's, That's what the world is telling you. The world is telling you life is about your glory now. You can glory in your comfort, glory in your academic success, glory in your career, glory in your children's sporting achievements. You can glory in your extension or your bank balance. Just glory for you now. That's what the world says life's about. And that's what Peter sees. He sees Jesus and he goes, glory. That's what we're into, Jesus. You're the glorious king. That's, that's a human view of life. It's actually what the devil has sold people since the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3 in essence the devil says to people he says to Adam and Eve it's all about you (laughs) no really ignore that God you do what you want you eat that fruit it'll make you like God you decide what right and wrong is it's all about you glory for you now and the result is well the result is the world history that we have but life's not about that life's about the glory of God 
And when you view the cross with the mind of God, when you're having things with the mind of God, what, what you see is the ultimate act of self-giving love. You see that for us to enjoy God's glory forever, for us to know God's forgiveness, that he has to come and die for us in the person of Jesus. What you see is that the one who we've offended bearing our offense, the one who we owe paying our debt, the one who we deserve to be punished by bearing that punishment. You see the father pouring out his own, own wrath upon his son, the wrath that should be ours, so we can simply come into relationship with him and enjoy his love and glory forever. You see, if you see the cross with the mind of God, you see it as the most beautiful thing in history. The Son of Man must die. The King of glory must bear our shame. That's what Jesus says. Do you know, there is something I think slightly warped, ironic, a paradox in our culture. Because we want comfort and glory for ourselves. That's what we aspire to. But we can't stop ourselves celebrating sacrificial love. Do you know that? You see that in our literature, in films, you know, in popular television. We love people who lay down their lives for others. The uh, 14th of December, 2012, has been in the news again. Some of you will remember the day. Sandy Hook Elementary School in the States. It's been in the news, of course, because of the whole debate about gun ownership in the States. But, but the, in that tragedy, that there were, were moments of glorious love and sacrifice. Uh, Victoria Soto was one teacher at Sandy Hook. After uh, Adam Lanza broke through the front door, shooting out the glass, he shot the principal and he shot the school psychologist. And over the tannoy, do you remember over the tannoy, they could hear the screams and the shooting, and teachers began to be aware that something awful was happening. And what Victoria Soto did was that she, she ushered her kids, most of them, into the closet in the classroom. Uh, as Lanza came into to the classroom, a few of the kids started to scream and run, and he shot them dead. And then what Soto did is she, she stood between him and that closet. It wasn't a reasoned plan, it was just a gut reaction. And of course, she was killed. She was killed, but kids were found in the closet alive afterwards. Now, we love sacrificial love. We know that, that that's what should be the heart of life. We admire it above all else. But, but can I say to you that what Victoria Soto did, it is undoubtedly heroic. She's received a medal since, but it is trivial compared to what Jesus did. Soto died for kids who undoubtedly she loved and loved her. Jesus died for us who by nature ignore him, reject him. Live for ourselves. Soto had to make a, Victoria Soto had to make a split-second decision, didn't she? Jesus, before the creation of the world with his father, had made this plan that meant that he knew he must suffer and die. He came into the world specifically for that purpose. That was the weight that he bore throughout his life. Can you imagine how tired you'd be if throughout your whole life you know you're heading to a cross? To bear not just the physical pain of being shot, but the spiritual agony of suffering for our sin? You know those life rings you see on the coast? Or, or, they're beside the beach, aren't they? 
or, or sometimes you're walking by a river or a reservoir, and you think, there's a life ring. That's, that's great. Glad they've got them there. Your attitude to a life ring changes when you're floundering in the water and someone's thrown it to you, and in your exhaustion, it is the only thing keeping your head above the surface. And that's the difference for Christians on the cross. It's not just, oh yeah, yeah, Jesus died. Yeah, I know that. No, Christians cling to the cross because we know it's the only thing that means that we can come into the presence of our loving Heavenly Father, not in fear, but in confidence, not stained by our sin, but clean, not, not, not dreading that we'll be rejected, but knowing we'll be accepted. So we cling to it. No, nothing to the cross I bring. Simply, I cling to it, don't I? That's what we do. It's the difference between saying, oh yeah, Jesus died on the cross, and saying, Jesus died for me. And Peter hasn't got that yet. He's going to get it. He's going to get it. Because he's going to write a letter later in life and say, Christ died for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. And when you see the cross like that, then suddenly what Jesus says next begins to make sense. Because the king must die, and here's the second thing, we must follow him. Because uh, next Jesus calls the crowd around him. It's a, it's a teaching opportunity. But what he, he's about to say is not just teaching for his first disciples. It's actually the only way you can be a follower of Jesus Christ. L- look at verse 34. Th- there's a problem word in verse 34. He says this. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. In some translations, it says, if anyone wants to be my disciple. It's the same idea. Anyone who wants to follow me, this is the way you can do it. So this teaching is not for you if you are not in the category of anyone. Okay, if you're outside anyone, you can ignore what is being said here. But, but if you're in anyone, then this is for all of us. This is the only way to follow Jesus Christ. Anyone includes everyone. And because probably we're slow like me, he repeats it in verse 35 by saying, for whoever again, twice. And then in verse 38, he says, anyone again. This is for all of us. This is the only way to follow Jesus Christ. This isn't sort of teaching for the uber-Christian, the superhero Christian who's really got the Christian life sussed, but there are sort of Division Four Vauxhall Conference Christians who can bump along not really following Jesus. This is the only way to follow him, he says. And he says you've got to do two things if you want to follow me. You've got to deny self in verse 34. Whoever wants to follow, be one of my disciples, must deny themselves. You've only got room for one person on the throne of your life, haven't you? Either we'll be at the center of our life, or Jesus will be. That's the heart of that Bible word, idolatry. Idolatry, in its essence, really, is worshiping ourselves. It's, it's us acting like God. We, we, we project that onto other things, you know, I, I might idolize my family because my family make me feel good about myself. I might idolize my career and worship that, and, and I'll know I'm worshiping it because it controls my thinking, and, and when my mind is in neutral, that's where I go. But actually, in the end, it's about me getting worship, my career making me feel good about me. But there's only room for, for one God in your life, the person of Jesus or you. And so if Jesus is going to be your God and you're going to follow him, then you've got to deny self. Someone very honestly once said to me, he said, 
I was just thinking to myself recently, I'm 50 years old. I mean, who's got the right to tell me how to live? Who's got the right to tell me what I should do? And do you know about the difference about, about him compared to most of us, compared to me? Actually, he, he at least honestly verbalizes what he's thinking. Because most of us live like that, don't we? We just instantly get hacked off when, when someone else tries to tell us what to do. But Jesus says you've got to deny self. And our whole culture is about self. This is the problem all the time. On the internet, on the TV, you're being told, really feel good about yourself. If you're feeling sad, let me give you ten reasons why you shouldn't feel sad about yourself. You're feeling tired, let me show you the holiday where you can indulge yourself. It's all about you. And the danger is we we get that view of Jesus, that, that he's sort of content to be a part of our life. The sort of Jesus who's a lifestyle accessory. You know, he's there when you need him. He's there before the exams at school. He's there when someone you love dies. But most of the time, because Jesus is such a, a lovely, non-demanding friend, he's happy while you get on and live for yourself until you need to give him a call. But, but that's not true, is it? You've got to deny self. What, what are you like at being a, a passenger in a car? I'm, I'm not very good. I'm a control freak. I'm not very good. I had a lift. I won't name the person I had a lift with last week. There was quite a lot of this going on in the passenger seat. I was braking. He wasn't slowing. It's funny, there are no pedals there. I wish there was a pedal. What do you like being a passenger in the car? Now, with the Lord Jesus, a lot of the time, you know, we invite him into our life, but he's in the back seat. He's sort of there. He's present. You know, it's nice of us to have him along for the ride. And if we really need him, We'll, we'll turn over the shoulders. So Jesus, I've got a couple of things I want to ask you about. Sometimes we invite him into the front seat because he's a bit more central. Yeah? The seat of privilege beside us. Actually, I'm driving in France, aren't I? Seat of privilege beside us. Yeah? And we know he may be useful for directions. Maybe he knows the area better than us. So from time to time, we'll turn to him and say, can you just tell me which way to go? But what Jesus is saying is, mate, unless I'm in the driver's seat, you're not following me. Unless I'm at the controls of your life, unless I'm the one deciding the way you use your time and your relationships and your money and your house and your career, unless I'm the one driving that, you're not even following me. I'm following you. You've got to deny yourself. And of course, denying yourself isn't insanity because he's the king of love. (laughs) He's the one who's laid down his life for you. You can trust him. Wouldn't you trust your life to someone who laid down their life for you? And and denying self, Jesus says, secondly, means taking up your cross. To take up your cross is to so identify with Jesus, you'll go anywhere with him. You see, when, when Mark is writing this, when Jesus is speaking, there was only one place you were going to if you were carrying a cross. You were going to your death, your execution. Now, many people say, don't they, we all have our crosses to bear, by which they mean their ingrowing toenail or their mother-in-law. That is not what this is talking about, okay? This is not some, like, random suffering you've got. Now, to take up your cross is far more profound. It's Jesus saying, look, if you want to follow me, you've got to be willing to follow me, whatever the cost. And, of course, as Mark is writing, probably Mark's gospel goes to Christians in Rome, the cost is going to be one day, one thing, literally death. Now, let's be honest, most of us are not going to face death for following the Lord Jesus Christ. We sit in the Arton Lounge. We sit in the Arton Lounge named after 
missionaries in the 1960s, wonderfully sent by All Saints Preston to the Congo, who died for following Jesus. But, but most of us aren't going to face death. Oh, you can go on the internet and you can, can read about Christians today in, in countries across the world, places like Eritrea, who will die today for their faith. But most of us are not going to face death. But, but we will get flack if, if we're willing not to deny Jesus, if we'll follow him, if we're willing to own up to being a Christian. If we're willing to say, yeah, Jesus is my life and the cross is my treasure and I want to follow him whatever the cost. I mean, lots of you know this because lots of you don't own up to being a Christian at work, do you? They just think you're that slightly nice bloke who doesn't swear quite as much as them. And if they don't think that, you've got to stop it now. You know, lots of you know this because in your family, when, when you said, you know, as a young person, I've become a Christian... They either said, oh, that's very nice, dear. Or what, wasn't our upbringing good enough for you? So you've just kept quiet about Jesus now at family gatherings because it's all a bit tense. We know that it is a cost to following Christ. But, but can, you, can you imagine for a moment what an impact we'd make on Chessington? What an impact we'd make on, on the workplaces that we occupy just represented here in this room, what an impact we'd make on our street or in our family if we actually lived wholeheartedly like this, if we denied self and were willing to be counted as Christ's whatever the cost, if we'd stand for him without fear in the world. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what an impact you'd make on your kids' lives if they thought... Dad is nuts for Jesus. That's what we need to pray for Paul. The best thing that can happen for Megan, Olivia, and James is they see a man who's denying himself, taking up his cross, and following Jesus. Every time he says, I'm not going to indulge myself in that way, but I'm actually going to look to share the gospel in this way, that will be a far better lesson than every single Bible study they do. That's the primary way our kids learn. That's why Deuteronomy says that. That's why they need to learn it from us. And if that's the case, why bother? Well, Jesus piles up the reasons at the end of our passage. They actually come in verse 35 to 38. Each of those verses begins with the word for. Here's the reason it's worth denying self, taking up cross and following Jesus. For, look at verse 35 with me. For whoever wants to save their soul will lose it, but whoever loses their soul for me and the gospel will save it. You see, in the end, if we take control of our own lives, if, if we're just interested in getting what we want for ourselves, self being king, then we'll lose life. But don't we see that day in, day out? But don't we see it in our culture? How can a culture that celebrates Love Island and Game of Thrones be a culture that we genuinely believe has wholesome, loving relationships at its heart? Has true, deep peace and contentment? But it's not just lose life now. We're going to see it's more serious. It's about losing life forever. 
Look at verse, verse 36. Here's, here's the second reason. For, for what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? You see, the atheistic materialist, the, the, the people that dominate really what you're hearing from our culture, assume that this is who you are. Let me read about who you are. Here you are. You are 65% oxygen, 18% carbon, 10% hydrogen, 3% nitrogen, 1% calcium, 1% phosphorus, 0.35% potassium, 0.25% sulfur, 0.15% sodium, 0.15% chlorine, 0.0005% magnesium, 0.0004% iron, 0.00004% iodine. That's all you are. And you've randomly arrived where you are over a period of millions of years, and at the moment there's a whole set of random, conditional, chemical, neurochemical reactions going on in your brain. Some of you look like they've stopped some time ago, but don't worry, so will I. I used that list before, by the way, in a university context, and some chemist came up to me and went, that list's out of date. That's not the point. <laughs> Do you think you're just a bunch of chemical components that'll be less than a quid in, an, in the open market? Is that all you're worth, less than a quid? Now, the Bible says you're much more. You're created in the image of a God who is love to enjoy relationship with him and other people, relationships of love. That is where you find joy and contentment and peace. And you can have that in this world, but most importantly, that is what you'll have forever. You see, you've got to be clear, 99.9999% of the blessings of the Christian life are in the life to come. You see, don't get me wrong, being a Christian today is a wonderful thing. I, I do not regret for a moment having been brought to Christ in 1989. As a Christian today, I know I'm loved despite the way I am. I know I'm forgiven for everything I've ever done. And you wouldn't forgive me. Someone was saying to me, a lovely girl in our, our congregation, I was sitting there. On Mondays, I tend to get down a bit. You know, it's the post-Sunday blues. And she was saying, I've been praying for you, Daph. I know Mondays are hard. And I said, I'm not a very nice person. And she said, no, none of us are, Daph. And I thought, no, no, really. I, I really don't think that you've done some of the things I've done on a rugby pitch. You are a much nicer person by nature than me. But I know I'm forgiven and pure and can come into the presence of God. I, I'm part of a family I'm loved by you guys, which in itself is a miracle of the Spirit. And being a Christian today is, is the most precious thing. But 99.9999999% of the blessings of the Christian life are in the life to come. That's why it's worth losing the trinkets of this world for. You see, this world doesn't work without Christ. And forever with Christ is the best thing that you'll ever be offered. I mean, take, for example, the, the, the case of Howard Hughes. Did you know Howard Hughes? Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio was in a film about him a few years ago. He was one of the richest men of the 20th century, a billionaire before billionaires littered our land. There were hardly any billionaires in the world. And what did Howard Hughes do? He used his money to do what we do. You know, he used his money to feed his appetite for kicks. So he bought 20 of the world's fastest cars and drove them all on one day. He used his money to feed his appetite for luxury. So he owned, literally, some of the most opulent homes in almost every developed country in the world. 
You know, Hughes' home was the best in the States and the best in France. He used his money to feed his appetite for lust, and so he went through relationships one after another after another. The most beautiful women in the world were at his door day by day. In the end, he used his money to feed his appetite for thrills, and he pumped heroin into his veins. I'm sorry you'll know this. Do you, do you know how Howard Hughes died? When they found him, he was three and a half inches shorter than his normal height because he was so stooped. He was seven and a half stone lighter in weight. His chest had sunk. His belly was swollen. His eyes were wild with insanity. His hair had grown to his waist. His teeth had rotted. And he had died of... Do you know what Howard Hughes died of? Malnutrition. Yet he had one billion pounds in the bank account. And Jesus says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? The world promises so much, but it delivers so little. And here's the problem. If we lose our soul, verse 37 tells us there's nothing we can give in exchange for it. But do you know the beauty? We don't have to give anything in exchange for it because God has given his son in exchange for it. There's nothing we can do, but there's nothing that we have to do. And so here's the issue. Will you deny self? Will you put Jesus first? And will you take up your cross and follow him? Because there is a day coming when that is the only thing that will matter to every human being on the planet. That day is talked about by Jesus in verse 38. For, it starts with the same word, for if anyone is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. That's not our biggest problem. We live as though it is, but it's not. Our biggest problem is where will we stand on the day that the Son of Man is seen in his glory? The day when the whole world will stand before the one who hung upon the cross to declare his love to them. And they will fear him because he will be with his holy angels and all will see him as their creator and Lord. And on that day, says Jesus, if you're ashamed of me, if you won't associate with me, if you're not willing to follow me, whatever the cost then I'm going to be ashamed of you. You'll hear those dreadful words recorded in Matthew's gospel, words from the Lord Jesus Christ to people on that day. Away from me, you evildoers. I never knew you. Now let me ask you, do you think the kids who were in Victoria Soto's closet, the ones who survived, were ever embarrassed about being associated with her? Do you think they, they wouldn't want to shout from the rooftops her name because she loved them and had saved them? As I said, they'd given her a medal. That's all Jesus wants us to do. To not be ashamed of him. To put him first. To treasure what he has done for us. And if, if we do so, he says, you have an eternal glorious future with me. In verse One of chapter 9, he promises his disciples some of them are going to see it, and that's exactly what happens next. Some of them do see Jesus in glory on top of a mountain. But actually, his promise to all those who follow him is you will see him in glory face to face forever. That's where Brian is. He's only 84. He's not that old in our world, is it? But he'll live forever. 
And so will you. And you'll either live forever face to face with the one who loves you and you have loved, or you'll live forever suffering the punishment of the one who you've toyed with or rejected. How long are you hoping to live? My uh, nephew's best friend, Alex, went on one of those gap years, you know, between school and university. He went to Nepal. He was doing some sort of Christian service there because Alex was a Christian. And at the end of the trip, they thought they'd have some fun. You know how you do those trips and at the end you have sort of a week of relaxation and fun? They, they went whitewater rafting. Anyway, the, the raft that Alex was in turned over. Can happen, can't it? But what happened was that, it, that he got jammed and the, and the raft got jammed under a rock and the instructor was there clinging onto him and slowly the current was dragging him down the river and the instructor, though a strong man, could not hold on. 18 years old. Alex looks this guy in the face. And he says, don't worry, I'm ready to meet my God. And with that, the grip is lost. How long are you planning to live? How long are you planning for your kids to live? For your friends to live? You see, that is what it is to know that your soul is safe in the hands of Jesus. And Jesus says to you, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. And if you do that today, forever. And that's a mighty long time. Forever. Whether you died 18 or 84 or 115, forever is face to face with the one who's loved you more than you can possibly imagine. Shall we pray together? Let's pray. Maybe a moment just for you to ponder on what the Lord Jesus has done for you at the cross, that the Son of Man, the one who's given you life, gave up life for you. Our Father in heaven, we cannot imagine how glorious and perfect and powerful the Lord Jesus is. Therefore, we cannot imagine how far he stooped that he became a a man, he became a servant. And not just a servant, but a servant who was obedient to death, even death on a cross. And Father, we know that therefore you've exalted him to the highest place, that he is the name above every name. And that at his name, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And Father, you call us to follow him. And that might mean suffering, but it will never mean suffering like his. That might mean hardship, but it will never mean hardship like his. And yet, at the same time, it will be glory like his. We will be lifted up to be with him 
we will enjoy forever on a restored creation with him. Not because of anything we've done, quite the opposite, because of solely what he's done. So please today help us to follow him, to deny self, to take up cross, to not be ashamed of Jesus, but to treasure him, to share him, just a little bit to love him more, for his name's sake. Amen.